Yeah, please just uh, be in a mindful state of worship as we uh, read the words of the Lord. Now, in a certain, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to wake him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now then, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, shall he yet live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went out to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus said, Deeply moved again, he came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone, Martha. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, 
Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Amen. Would you remain standing? Thank you, Megan, as we pray together. Father, thank you for the story of Lazarus. I pray it would be inspiration to us all that we would be able to hold on to life after death and that the spirit of the resurrected Jesus would be manifestly present among us this morning, that our hearts would rejoice, that we would not fear any death, that we would realize, God, because of what Jesus does and can do and will do, we have hope beyond graves. We have hope beyond any forms of death, whether it be physical death or death of any sort that creeps up on our lives. I pray that life would come into the room today, that life would come into our life, and that death would be defeated, that we would be able to say, as Paul did, bragging over death, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? We thank you, Jesus, that you have taken the stinger out of death, and you have won the victory over it as well, and we glory in that this morning, God. If nothing else, I pray that we would be people that are reinfused with the life of God, because of the good work of Jesus and the way that this text is before us. I pray you bless us this morning. Give us clarity in mind and heart as we study together. In Jesus' name we said it. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. From this stage, I have frequently quoted my favorite British man, Clive Staples Lewis or as he's better known, C.S. Lewis. And he wrote a series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. How many of you Narnia fans out there? Woohoo! in the house. In book number six of C.S. Lewis' masterful work, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, he, in his book, The Silver Chair, there's a scene in there where Aslan, the great lion, the protagonist, the main figure of the story, the Christ figure that Lewis wrote about, he's interacting with the girl in the story named Jill, and they're on Aslan's mountain, if you remember the book. And uh, while on Aslan's mountain, Aslan is basically informing Jill about the quest that he's inviting her to take. And as he's informing her about how to accomplish this quest, he tells her that there are four signs that she needs to remember along the way in order to be successful in her quest. So before he sends her off, Aslan the great lion, the Christ figure, sends the little girl off to her mission, he gives her this little pep talk, and I wanted to just read an excerpt out of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, Silver Chair. So listen to what Aslan says. But first, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night. And when you wake in the middle of the night, Whenever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly, 
I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it is important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. And now, daughter of Eve, farewell. And as you know, the story goes on. Aslan blows and she catches his breath off into the mission, the quest that she is to go upon. And along the way, she forgets the signs. Aslan says, remember this and don't forget it and say it to yourself over and over again because when you're down the mountain from here, you're gonna be prone to forget. And I believe every follower of Jesus Christ needs a few truths that you have on lockdown that you could preach to yourself when you are down here in the affairs of life and the air is thick and life is confusing, we have to have the ability to preach the gospel to ourselves and to have something to say to ourselves to remind us on the darker days of what we really believe. So I would uh, encourage you to create a list of things that you know. What do you know? Not, not what are you struggling with or what are you wrestling with, but, but what do you know? What do you know about God? It may not be a lot, but you know something. What do you know, like deeply know about God? What do you know about yourself? And what do you know about the world? What do you know that is true about God and yourself and the world? I would, I would encourage you to make a list. A list just called, what do I know? A gospel you can preach to yourself. And then write it down and have it laminated. And put it in a few places, key places, so that when the air gets thick, to use the C.S. Lewis analogy, the silver chair analogy, when life gets confusing, you can preach this gospel to yourself. And so I wrote a few things down this week. If I'm going to preach to myself, this is what I know. This is what I preach. Here's my list. First of all, I know that my Heavenly Father is strong and He saves. I know that my Heavenly Father loves me. I know that my Heavenly Father is good and intends good upon my life. I know that my Heavenly Father is redeeming everything. I know that my Heavenly Father has given me power and purpose for this life. And I know that the future is bright and things are getting better. Now, if there's a message to preach to yourself, Lazarus is a good message. The message of Lazarus is a message that you can preach to yourself. And if you didn't know this, Lazarus' name is the Greek equivalent of a Hebrew name, Eleazar. And Eleazar means God is my help. And so Lazarus' message, if you were to boil it down to its greatest simplicity, is this, life beats death. That's the message of Lazarus. Every time there is death, life wins. Life will always beat death. And that is the, 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 the metaphor of the life of Lazarus. God is my help. He gives me victory over all things that would, try to, that would try to overwhelm me. And Jesus in this passage gives one of the most important autobiographical statements about his life. Notice again, Jesus said about himself here in John chapter 11, in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live 
even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Now, look down at the text because the quote isn't finished. Jesus says this amazing thing to Martha in the middle of her sorrow because of her dead brother. And he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes on me will never die. And he gives her this great statement about himself. And then he asks, he, he gives her these four words. And these are the most personally probing confrontational words of Jesus to me, at least for this morning. And that is this question. Do you believe this? This is true. Jesus said it about himself. So this is true. He is the resurrection and the life. But... The most probing question is, do you believe this? Do you believe that because of Jesus, life beats death? Do you believe that? Is that something you could say with confidence and faith? And I'm just going to call out in the room that I think many of us probably are at different places with this truth of Lazarus, the life beats death. A few things that probably are going on in some of our hearts this morning uh, first of all, there's probably someone in the room this morning that you're not really going through a major trauma. And you love Jesus, you believe in Jesus. And so when I say something like life beats death, you're like, yes, and amen to that. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And it's not hard for me to say, I believe this. If Jesus were to ask, do you believe this? I would say, yes. And based on the lack of trauma and suffering in my life, it's actually easy to believe this. But there may be someone else here in the room that is in the middle of a trauma and you're wrestling with doubt and trust because what the Bible says and what Jesus said about himself and what you're seeing in life don't seem to add up. And when I say something like life beats death or when Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, you're saying it's a little bit harder for me. It's a sore spot because I'm not seeing life in my life. I'm not seeing resurrection. I'm not seeing victory in my life. Or you may be in here this morning and it's not your life, but it's someone that you're in close relationship to that's suffering. And watching them suffer is hard for you to get your mind and heart and faith around the idea that Jesus brings life where there is death. And then maybe, just maybe, there's someone in here who just doesn't believe at all. And there is space for all of that in this room. We're all welcome here, and I actually believe that Jesus has a way that he wants to get at everybody in this room. Those who say, this is easy for me to believe. Those who say, I'm wrestling with doubt and faith. Those who would say, it's for somebody else's pain that I wrestle with the statements like, Jesus beats death. Or maybe yeah, you just, right now in your life, you just don't believe Jesus has something for you today. And, and, and it's okay to wrestle because Martha wrestles. Jesus comes at her at sort of the height of her pain and agony. Her brother is dead and has been dead for four days now. And Jesus comes at her with this statement that you need to believe that before I do anything to, to take care of your circumstances, that I am resurrection life. And she, she goes between Doubt and trust, and it's seen right here. You can look at the contrast in, in verse 20 and 20, 21 and 22. Uh, she, she wrestles with doubt and trust. Verse 21 and 22, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, doubt, where were you, by the way? You knew about this, and you let him die. But then she expresses some faith. 
But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. So she's wrestling with this tension. Do you believe in Jesus that life beats death? And if you're struggling with that, you are welcome here. And I believe Jesus wants to to fill you with faith this morning. Um, There are a couple of things I know from this text about this little family from Bethany. They're going to be really obvious statements, but I think we need to, to, to speak them into the room. And that is this. I know two things about this family. I know, number one, that Jesus loved them. He loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and yet Lazarus died. He loved them, number one. Number two, they were suffering. Now, those two things might seem that they should be mutually exclusive. If Jesus loves them, Lazarus shouldn't be dead. If Lazarus is dead, then Jesus doesn't love them. But none of that is true. The truth is, Jesus loved this family, verse 5, and they were suffering. Because we don't always have a full exemption from suffering, even though Jesus loves you. And he does love you even when, proverbially, Lazarus dies. And when he finds out that Lazarus is sick, Did you notice what he did? Did you pick up on that detail, having read this text before maybe in your life, when it says that that the word came from Martha through her disciples or a messenger that Lazarus, the one that you love, is sick. Sick unto death, like deathly ill. And it says, John says, and by the way, when Jesus got that news, he didn't turn on the sirens and rush as fast as he could to Lazarus' side. He waited two more days. He waited for a sick man to finally die. He waited for the situation to go from bad to worse. And G. Campbell Morgan, the great British pastor and thinker, wrote this about the delays of Jesus. So we may learn that he often permits us to pass into profounder darkness and deeper mysteries of pain in order that we may prove more perfectly his power. Notice what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, Lazarus is dead because he kept saying Lazarus is sleeping. And they're like, oh, don't wake him up. Guy's taking a nap. Leave him alone. He goes, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead, verse 14 and 15. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. And G. Campbell Morgan puts it, Jesus let him die. And he sometimes lets things go into profounder states of darkness so that we will be able to see that nothing is beyond the reach of Jesus Christ. Now there's some, something significant about the amount of days that Jesus allowed Lazarus to be in the tomb. Four days. In Jesus' day, there was a Jewish superstition that when somebody died, that their soul would hover over their body waiting to perhaps be resuscitated and go back into the body and resurrect. They believed that for three days the soul was near the body and after the third day the soul departs. And so if you would, four days is significant because in the Jewish mind, three days he could resuscitate. Four days he's beyond hope. He's dead. And Jesus waits till the situation gets to what they would call beyond hope. Have you ever been in a place where a situation has gone beyond hope? Where there, there was the chance 
that maybe the dead could resuscitate. It was like the third day or the second day. And you could see that maybe this situation could, could come back or this person could come back. And, and, and then have you ever been where it goes beyond hope? That's where Mary and Martha are and the morning Jews that were around mourning the death of Lazarus. Things had gone beyond hope. And Jesus actually lets it get there. It's a more profound miracle on the fourth day than it would have been on the third and there are times, I believe, as we see in the story, that Jesus lets things go beyond human reach, beyond human explanation. If we're going to get out of this, if this is going to come back to life, it's going to have to be a miracle from heaven itself. And that's where Mary and Martha are in John chapter 11. And they both come to Jesus, notice, saying the exact same thing. Did you notice that? The, both sisters say the exact same thing. Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. So do these people have faith? Absolutely. They believed that if Jesus had been there, he could have taken care of their sick brother. Now they both say the exact same thing to Jesus, but they come at him very differently. Because if you've been around the Bible a long time, you know that Mary and Martha are a little bit different. Um, we're told in verse 20, although they both said the same thing when they reached Jesus, they both approached him very differently. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming... Her brother's dead. She hears Jesus is on his way. She went out to meet him. And I'm sure she was angry and passionate. And she's like going to go confront Jesus and have it out. Lord, where were you? You know, you could have come a little earlier. He was just dead or, or, or sick, but now he's dead. Where were you? That's how Martha comes at Jesus. But it says that Mary stayed at home. And so it's your classic personality, introvert extrovert. It's external processor, internal processor. It's the activist and the mystic. Martha goes out to confront Jesus with the same words, Lord, if you'd only been here, our brother wouldn't be dead. Where were you? How could you have let this happen? And Mary, when she finally comes to Jesus, because Martha comes home and says, hey, the teacher wants you. She gets up, her mystic, internal processor, introverted self, and comes to Jesus and falls at his feet and says the same exact thing. Lord, if you'd only been here, her brother wouldn't be dead. And here's what I want to say. There was no wrong in either of their approaches because grief is grief. It hits everybody differently and respond to it differently. There's room for Martha. I am a Martha. I am an external processor. Ask my wife. I have to emote, and if I'm angry, I have to feel that anger and talk it out, and I've got, I've got to get it out. I cannot bottle stuff in. My wife is a Mary. When something happens at home, some devastating thing happens, she gets quiet. She gets off on her own. She needs to process inside. She doesn't want to talk it out. She needs time. She needs space. She'll sit there and wait for the master to call. Me? I'm like, God, what in the world is going on here? I'm Martha. And I love that the Bible leaves room for both types of processing. That, 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 that when grief hits our lives, we, we come at it differently. And there's, that's okay. But the thing that I think is fascinating is how Jesus processes this. Because I think, although I probably knew this passage from a child, it was the easiest one to memorize if you wanted candy at Sunday school. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Boom, give me the Snickers. 
but I didn't process it because a lot of times my conditioning in church was that, that Christians are supposed to be of the most, of all people, most aware that nothing when bad happens that God is going to take care of it. God is still good. And so there was always like this cheerleading squad. Anytime you would have a, a tragedy hit your life and it was like they, they were the anti-lament squad. You can't cry. You shouldn't cry. Or, or if you cry, dry those tears soon and don't go into full lament because we're scared of full lament because maybe that's like lacking faith or maybe that's dissing God. Or, and, and yet Jesus comes on the scene and he accepts Martha telling him off. And he, and he goes after Mary, who's sitting quietly processing what's happened. And then he himself gets emotional. Now, that is the weirdest part of all, because he knew what he was going to do. I mean, if you know the dead guy's not going to be dead and, and you're going to call him out of the grave, why are you crying? And if anybody had a reason not to cry, it was Jesus. But notice what it says about the emotion, the deep emotion that Jesus felt at this time, it says in verse 33, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Verse 35, he wept. Jesus wept. And again, verse 38, Jesus once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. Why does God weep? Why does Jesus cry? Why is the miracle worker deeply moved by this? Because Christianity, though it is a message of hope, is also very aware of the human side of life, that we live in a fallen, broken world. And you should weep sometimes. Sometimes the best thing to do is weep. Learn to lament. In Jesus' day, at funerals, they wailed. I mean, let it out. They paid people to cry. And when Jesus comes to a situation that's sad when there is death, Jesus wails. I think we're, we're too quick to try to tell people, oh no, it's okay, and pat them and say it's okay. No, we need to say wail, let it out, let the snot and the tears flow. This is healing. You need to lament. Some things, some things are terrible. Some things shouldn't be that way. Death shouldn't be, and things shouldn't be as they are all the time in a fallen, broken world. And Jesus just weeps. He, he's, he's, he's secure enough in who he is and who his God is and in his own masculinity. He just knows how to weep with those that weep. They're crying. He's crying. God cries sometimes. Jesus knows what he's going to do, and he cries sometimes. Some of you are unhealthy because you don't know how to cry. Because somewhere along the line, that spout of tears got turned shut. Like you had to survive so you couldn't cry. You, you learned a th bad theology that says don't lament. Hey, there are, are many, many psalms in the Bible that are intended to make you cry. They are psalms of lament. Lament is all through the scriptures. And Jesus steps into the situation full well knowing what he's going to do. And he just weeps. The Bible talks about Jesus in these terms. In Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way just as we are. You know, Jesus weeps. Jesus understands. Uh, emotions aren't bad. God gave us emotions. And, and we have the Scriptures telling us that Jesus understands what it's like to be in your skin but then Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, about grief as a follower of Jesus. 
Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve, not that you do not grieve, but that you don't grieve like the rest of the mankind who have no hope. We do grieve. There is a place for grief. When, when, when terrible things happen, there is a place for grief. But we don't grieve like the rest of mankind who do, do so without hope. And that's the paradox of Christianity. A crying, weeping, wailing follower of Jesus is not somebody who's lost hope, but somebody who's fully leaning in to being human. And sometimes the, be- the best way to be human is to know how to lament. And Jesus fully leans into that. But I love the fact that Jesus then steps to the tomb and says, okay, now I'm going to deal with the situation. I've wept, I've mourned, I've, I've dealt with the introvert and the extrovert. And, and as Jesus steps to the tomb, I learned two things that are true about life. From John 11, from the Bible, and from my own life experience, two things that are true. All suffer and all suffering is temporary. Everybody's going to suffer, and all of the suffering is just momentary. So Jesus steps in, and he's about to bring life out of the death. The first thing he does is say, roll away the stone. And they say, Lord, there's a bad odor. I think the King James Version of the Bible says, Lord, he stinketh. (laughs) And Jesus says, let the stink out. Let it out. Let's, 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 let's expose ourselves to the full horror of everything that's behind this tomb. We're going to fully experience this death. And I think that's something that we're not all very good at. Because some of you have had horrible things happen to you. You've seen horrible things. Your childhood was horrible. You had a horrible experience. And yet you keep the stone over the tomb. And if someone tries to probe you, and say, hey, let's talk about that. You're like, no, 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 no. We don't need to talk about that. I keep stones over that. And Jesus says, no, roll it away. The only way Lazarus is coming out, the only way that we're going to fully lean into life beating death is if we let it just stink for a while. Sometimes stuff just stinks, right? And you got to let it stink. And you got to lean into the stink. You got to say, roll the tomb out. Let's let it stink for a while. Let's, full, let's feel the full sting of this horror of what it means to be human sometimes. And I know a lot of us don't like to face off with some of those hard realities. But I tell you, it's in there anyway. Like, it stinks anyway. And part of the healing is letting that sucker stink for a while. Let the stink come out. And as Jesus exposes them to what they think is going to be a full exposure to the horror that they're trying to put behind a stone and move past, then Jesus calls out, Lazarus! Come forth. And some commentators say he had to call him by name because had he not, the entire grave tomb would have been emptied. If he would have just said come forth, there would have been a bunch of mummies walking out. So just with those words, Jesus commands life. He beats death. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus hobbles out or wobbles out, comes out like the mummy he was. And then Jesus says, again, when he sees Lazarus, Take off his grave clothes and let him go. Charles Spurgeon commented on this command. So, you know, we see what Jesus did. He commands life. And then he commands the disciples, the followers, 
to do something. Unravel him. Un- unwrap him from his grave's clothes. And so Charles Spurgeon commented on this saying, the man was wholly raised, but not wholly freed. See here is a living man in the garments of death. Think about that for just a moment. See here is a living person, a resuscitated, a resurrected person. But, as Spurgeon put it, they are still bound in the garments of death. Jesus' job is to raise us. Our job is to unravel ourselves from the garments of death. But notice it wasn't something Lazarus was commanded to do. It was the people that were standing with Lazarus. See, there's a place where community really matters. When Jesus does a miraculous work in your life, there's still graves closed, and it's, it's at that moment that the men and women who God has put around you are, are participating in the process of seeing you come from death to life, and they're unraveling the graves closed. That's what Jesus commands, and then Spurgeon later goes on to say this about the unraveling of graves closed. What a man can do for himself, now I think this is important, and he was a Calvinist, so a Calvinist said this. That might mean something to some of you. Some of you are like, I don't even know what that means. You talk Calvin and Hobbes? No, don't worry about it. What a man can do for himself, God will not do for him. What Christian people can do for sinners, they must expect the Lord. What Christian people can do for sinners, they must not expect the Lord to do. They must work themselves according to the ability God has given them up to the point of possibility, and then they may look for divine interposition. In other words, God does this and we have responsibilities as well. There's, some, there's an involvement on us. And so we do everything that we're called and don't expect God to do what you can do for yourself. He's given you the power through the Holy Spirit to do a lot. And when you reach the point of your, your, the end of your ability, the end of your possibility, then God says, okay, now I'll raise Lazarus. And so again, the things that we learn from this text are two. The first one is all will suffer. Now, maybe you have somebody like this in your life. I do. A person or two that I know that it it just appears, and my wife says, you never know the full story, but I know these people, okay? And from all that it appears, they just haven't had a very hard life. And I'm trying not to resent those people. I'm not, I haven't had the worst life, but I haven't had the best one. So when you're around somebody and you just recognize them, they just haven't had a hard life. They had fantastic parents. They were upper, upper middle class. They went to private school. They went to a great church. Their parents loved them and doted on them. They were athletic. They were handsome. They were prom king. They were just that person that you know that just seemed like all lights were green all the time for them. And and you look at their life and you think, man, they seem to be the healthiest and the wealthiest and the luckiest person I know. And I get it that there's some level of suffering, but I do just think there are some people who are just blessed. That their life is just relatively easy. And I know people like that because they'll tell me, Brian, I just have had an easy life. And I'm like, sucker, you know, like, (laughs) and I look at God and like, what, why him and not me, you know? But even the most lucky, wealthy, healthy, handsome, strong, pretty, most advantaged person you know will face suffering. Because last time I read the statistics, 10 out of 10 people die. 
everyone is going to face the final enemy, our last enemy, death. Everybody that is in your life right now, if you don't beat them, will die in front of you or around you. You're going to be, you will touch death. Death will touch you. People will leave your life through death. And, and, and therein we realize that even the person that it seems like they were always on the other end of a silver spoon, their parents will die. Their sibling will die. Their aunt, their uncle, their friend, people in their life are going to pass away. And so in times like that, because suffering touches all of us, we have to have some place to put our hope some anchor for the soul, some gospel we can preach to ourselves that when things go in a way in which we would stand at a tomb like Jesus and weep, we know how to encourage ourselves. We know how to keep our hope alive. And that leads us to the second thing for the morning, and that is to remember that all suffering is temporary. Jesus told Martha, even before he raised Lazarus, that he was the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believed on him, though they die, would live. In other words, life beats death. Jesus beats death. Jesus gives life, and we all, we all have resurrection life to look forward to. That is the best news I could give anybody in this room. Whether you've had the easiest life or the hardest life, I would say Life beats death, and we all have resurrection to look forward to. It's true, and it's good news, and it's to be celebrated and rejoiced over even in the most difficult of times. But then the question becomes for me, and this is where my mind and heart go in this. If we are anticipating resurrection life and excited about the, the day when we, we become new and God makes all things new and the earth and the heavens are all new and we're renewed, then what is this life? Is it just a, 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 an unfortunate dash between my birthday and my death day? Am I just, is this, is this life just like a placeholder? Like just don't mess this up, but just kind of wait it out in the waiting room and then resurrection will come? Is my whole life just kind of anticipating the new life? Then, then what are we even doing here for the 40, 50, 60, 80 years we get on planet earth? What's the point? Well, I love what another very brilliant Brit had to say. Uh, N.T. Wright in his great book, Surprised by Hope, he says this about the resurrection and, and the, 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 the reason that our lives here matter. The point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little bit more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project not to snatch people away from the earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's Prayer is all about. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our life here matters. It's important that we have truths that we know that can see us through, that it is going to get phenomenally better, but even now, 
our life has meaning and purpose. Amen? And so I want to finish here with all that said. The desired takeaway for me is this. This final statement that Jesus makes. Lazarus, come forth. And then He commands those around to take off His grave's clothes. We wear grave's clothes. Like Charles Spurgeon said, here is a living man and yet he's wearing the clothing he's wrapped in death. There may be a few of us here that have been following Jesus for a long time. But if Jesus were to call it out in the room, he would say, but you're still wrapped in the old clothes. Thinking, behaving, past regrets, bondage, things in your life that are old graves clothes. And friends, there is just too much that God has for us to do in this world. Anticipating resurrection, but living resurrection life now. Resurrection life doesn't start when you get it. It starts when Jesus invades your life and regenerates your heart. You, we are in resurrection life right now. How many believe that? We are, we, are, we are in resurrection life, but many of us are like Lazarus. And we're like, Jesus saved me. And you're like, yeah, but you don't look like you're doing much. Yeah, but, you know, like, I'm so glad to be alive. You know, I was back there. And came, I was dead back there. Face wrapped, clothes wrapped, can't move, aren't doing anything. Feet and hands and legs are just bound. And Jesus says, Lazarus, you can't do this for you. But everybody watching... This bound brother, this bound sister, loose him, unwrap him, and let him go. It is the job of your church community to recognize the death wrappings in your life. And when we become aware of them, it is then our job to partner with you as, according to Jesus' command and say, you can't keep doing this your whole life. That ain't living that's clo as close to death as a resurrected person is going to get. And some of you are living that, like as close to death as possible. Jesus raised you, but you're wrapped. And, and, and I believe that there are ways to unravel you. And sometimes you're just going to have to roll away the stone and let the stink out. We're going to have to talk about it. What are those graves closed in your life? Bad thinking, depression, despair, wrapped in, in, in financial uh, debt, wrapped in bad thinking, wrapped in a bad marriage, wrapped in struggling with your parenting, wrapped in a vocation that you feel like is a dead end, wrapped in hopelessness, wrapped in, in, in sin, wrapped in things that have just got you and you're just bound. And, and so Jesus calls the community of faith around you and says, unwrap, unwrap, unwrap. But frequently, many of us know how to stay away from people that could help unwrap us. And so you just bounce around from community to community and, and group to group and no one ever knows your grave's close. But that is not the church. That is not Emmaus. We're all up in your business. And hopefully the most respectful way, but sometimes we have to be a little bit daring to even get a little bit more disrespectful and be like, cut that nonsense out. You are being pretentious. You are wrapped, bro. Everyone knows it. We see you hobbling around. We know you, you can't move your legs. We can see that your face is covered. And, and we know that you are, and so when are we just going to talk about this? When are we going to speak it out 
and start unraveling some graves clothes? When are we just going to say, listen, like this isn't how Jesus wants you to be. And so let us get down by your legs and start unwrapping some graves clothes. And I believe that it happens when you confess. There's something, the Bible uses the word confess. If we confess our faults, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. But confession, the word homologeo, is to say the same as. It is to agree with God and with yourself and with the people listening that this ain't right. But some of us, the confession is hard because now you're admitting you're getting it out in the open like these are graves closed. This is wrong. This is unhealthy. I'm stuck. I'm, un, I'm, I'm not un, yet unwrapped. And it ain't right. And, 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 and don't settle for the graves closed, y'all. There's a time when we confess the graves closed and then we, as your brothers and sisters, speak out truth over the graves closed. And... We believe that Jesus starts to unwrap and unwind you, and it may take a while. You know, for a while at Emmaus, we had a group of people that were doing um, our grief recovery little program. I went away for a little bit in Montana with Adam Matthews' parents and, and went through this grief recovery process, brought that back here, and, and it is simply just a way to unwrap graves clothes and realizing that there is some stuff so deeply wound in your heart that it may take a while. It may not just be at the prayer wall but it can start here. We need to start building the kind of relationships that could unravel us. We need to have two or three people in our lives that could help unravel us when we get all bound up. When Jesus looks at us and says, raised but not unbound yet, not loosed to go. And so what I'm gonna call us towards this morning is more people being more courageous about their graves close. And and confessing those things to God and to others. Because as Charles Spurgeon said, there are things that you should be doing for yourself that Jesus won't do. Because he said, no, no, this is you. You can confess. You can get a brother or sister to pray. I'll do what you can't. There are things about the grave's clothes that you can't do. There are things that Jesus says, yeah, you can, you can do this. And what it's going to take this morning is this, some authentic friendship, some real, honest followers of Jesus. They're saying, you know, I'm not going to play around. I came to church, might as well face off with some of this stuff. I mean, where else are you going to face off with it? Because I know you're going to go back into life and the mind eraser about everything you heard God say to you this morning is going to completely wipe out your conviction right now. If right now you're feeling like, yes, I know that I am wrapped in a way that I shouldn't be, then right now is the time that you should deal with it. The Bible says today is the day. Now is the time. If you have heard the Lord's voice, do not harden your heart as they did in the day of provocation. When God speaks, we don't assume that he's just going to keep speaking that way. We say, God sometimes speaks into moments. And he says, this is a moment for you. And if it's a moment for you, then you have to say yes and amen to what God is saying. How many want out of all the graves clothes? I mean, I do. I do not want to see you or I don't want to be hobbling around in clothes that don't belong on me. And Jesus has said, so go to church, get involved with people who will help unravel you. So we're just calling this an unravel service. So we're going to sing a couple songs. I'm going to invite those of you who don't need to be unraveled to go grab communion. But if you do need prayer, then I'm going to say, don't grab communion before you get prayer. And we're going to have brothers and sisters. So if you're prayer wall people, um, 
uh, 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 just assume that I'm asking you to go to the prayer wall right now, um, men and women. And what we would just believe that God wants to do is just as you simply say, listen, this is how I'm bound. I, I'm bound financially. I'm bound in despair. I'm bound in, in loneliness. I'm bound in whatever it might be in this particular sin. And you're just going gonna to confess it. You're going to do 1 John 1, 9. And then we're just going to speak life and pray for God to release you. Because we believe that the process starts now. That one of us will just grab a little piece of cloth and we'll just start going like this. We'll start unraveling you and taking off the grave's clothes. And you might leave here just a little bit more free. We might get an arm loose or a leg loose. Or Jesus just might come in and, and we might just, whoo, and you might walk out of here ready and free in Jesus' name. So let's stand together. We're going to pray. We're going to sing. The communion tables are open for those of you who don't need prayer. But I'm going to also say, if you're dismissing yourself from getting prayer, I'm going to say, really? You're going to get off that easy? You're going to let yourself off that easy? Especially the people that never go to the prayer wall because you're like, oh man, like I, it's, it's, it's always not you. Well, maybe today God's saying, yeah, it is you. We know it. Some of us have seen you enough. We're like, probably like, when are you going to finally get over there and let us start unraveling some stuff? So, so I would just say, in the name of Jesus, be free. Let us be a part of the process of watching life beat death in your life.